You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit stonegate.church. Well, we have made it to the last uh, chapter in 1 Corinthians. We, we are almost to the finish line. And uh, when I think back, uh, when we first started uh, this book, if somebody would have asked me, I would have said, you know, I, I really like 1 Corinthians. But now after giving our attention to it for the last several months, I love this letter. And there's a lot of reasons that I love the letter of 1 Corinthians. One of those reasons, though, is that Paul addresses just about everything in it. Uh, For instance, he addresses church division, church discipline, lawsuits in the church, sexual immorality in the church, homosexuality in the church, singleness, marriage, divorce, uh, remarriage, roles in marriage, the right use of our rights, uh, temptation, idolatry, church services, what what should be happening in a church service, spiritual gifts, communion, uh, love, that that beautiful chapter, chapter 13, uh, the resurrection, one of the great chapters in the Bible. We've just spent the last four weeks in it in 1 Corinthians 15. I mean, Paul just looks the church in the eye and he just sort of says it all. I mean, he just lays it out there for him. But we've got one chapter left. He's not finished yet. And in the beginning of this last chapter, he addresses one of the most prickly subjects of all, money. That's where he's going today. He is addressing money and possessions. He's talking to the Corinthian church about generosity. Now, why does Paul do this? Uh, well, I want to take a step back and sort of answer it from the, 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 the largest sort of thing we could say about it, or from a 30,000 foot, uh, you know, view. What Paul is doing here is in step with the rest of the Bible. Throughout the scriptures, there are 2,350 verses that deal with money and possessions. If you look at all the recorded words of Jesus, 15% of what Jesus said dealt with money and possessions. Almost half of his parables on some level are dealing with money and possessions. Now, why is that? Why does the Bible give that much real estate to it? Why does Jesus, why does Paul give that much real estate to money and possessions? Well, I think the answer is because they know money and possessions is a root competitor for the affections of our heart. That's true of you and it's true of me. It is a ruthless competitor for our dependence, for what we're going to look to for our security, for how we're going to reach for satisfaction in our life and, and a little bit of happiness and joy. It is a ruthless competitor with Jesus for the affections of your heart. Do you remember the story of the rich young ruler? Uh, He asked Jesus, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, here's what you're going to need to do to follow me. Uh, Sell everything you own. Do you remember that moment? And if you know how that story goes, when Jesus asked him to walk away from all that he owned, he couldn't do it. So instead, he walked away from Jesus. That's the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, When he came to the fork in the road and he had to choose, do I want stuff or do I want a savior? He chose stuff over the Savior because his stuff was his Savior. His stuff was his God. What he owned, owned him. Stuff is what had his his heart. He just could not walk toward Jesus uh, because it meant he would have to let go of and walk away from his stuff in church. This is a well-worn road. It's not just the rich young ruler. Some of us are on that road. It's a well-worn road. Uh, Human beings for centuries have been choosing stuff over Jesus, over a Savior. The Bible is clear that what you do with money, or at least what you desire to do with money, will make or break you forever. That's the sort of danger. 
Uh, That's the sort of ruthless competitor that money and possessions are. Uh, It's the reason Jesus says in Matthew 6 that you cannot serve both me or two masters. You can't serve both me and money. You can't do it. You're going to have to choose one of these masters. And friends, the Bible is pretty clear. Money makes a bad master. Amen? Money is not the master you want, but Jesus is like, you're going to have to choose. Rich young ruler, you're going to have to choose. Uh, Friend, here, you're going to have to choose. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus knows this. Paul knows this. Uh, This is why the scriptures talk about money and possessions so much. Money and possessions form a ruthless competitor for the affections of your heart. What you do with money and possessions can make or break you forever. So when Jesus and Paul and us today, when we're talking about money and possessions, it's not because we want something from you. It's because we want something for you. We want you to be free from the love of money. I want that in my life. I hope you want that in your life. We want you to be free from the love of money. We want you to be free to give toward the agenda and the purposes of Jesus. We want you to be free to use what's been entrusted to you by God in a way that you will get to enjoy it forever, not just in this little life now. We want all of those things for you. That's why we talk about these things. It's why Paul talks about these things. It's why Jesus talks about these things. It's why the scriptures talk so much about money and possession. So with that said, I want to show you four things that Paul shows us in this letter. And uh, one, uh, so three things in this letter and one uh, in the next letter in 2 Corinthians. So I want to show you four things that Paul has to say about money and possessions. Four things. Here's the first. Paul wants us to see here that Christians give. Christians give. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints. This is what Paul is doing. He's collecting money from the church in Corinth. And he's about to give that money to the church in Jerusalem because they are impoverished. So this is a moment of generosity to the purposes and agendas of Jesus. Right? He's taking collection in the church. And then he says, As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Verse 2, on the first day of the week, you might underline these three words, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. Each of you, each of you should do this. He's talking about all the Christians that make up the church in Corinth. And not just there, he's talking about really in a broad sense, every Christian everywhere. Each of you. Each of you, all of you should give. All of you should set this money aside. All of you should be generous. Generosity is a reflex of a redeemed heart. It's what a redeemed heart does. It's what a heart that's experienced the grace of God does. It gives generously. Christians give. They give their time. They give their skills. They give their houses. They give their families. They give energy, tears, prayers. They give their cars. They, they, they give their money. They, they are just people who give. That's what a Christian is. When a person's heart has been captured by the grace of Jesus, it opens their heart. It opens their hands and they begin to give generously to the purposes and agendas of Jesus. Christians give. Now this walks us into the problem. If if Christians give, if if that's true, the problem is many people who self-identify as Christians do not give. That there's the problem. Uh, Christian Smith wrote a book. He's a Christian sociologist. He wrote a book uh, called Passing the Plate, where he did a huge study on the church in America and giving inside the church in America. And here are a few of the things he found. Uh, First, he found that one out of four self-identified Christians give nothing. 
So one out of four, if we just divided this room into four sections, a quarter of this room, if it held out, you know, held up in terms of the global church, a quarter of this room would, would be giving virtually nothing. One quarter, give virtually nothing to the causes and concerns of Jesus. Second thing he found is that the vast majority of Christians give very little. So of self-identified Christians, the median giving, median, is 0.62%. So 62 cents for every $100, that's the median giving. Now, uh, go back to like your 7th or 8th grade math class. Here's median, right? If 100 people, Christians were lined up, and we just went to number 50, that's the middle, that's the median. So that Christian right there, if they were all lined up in terms of their generosity, that Christian right there would be giving 0.62% of their income, right? That, that would be the median. Everybody down this way would be giving less than that. Median giving is 0.62%. The average giving among Christians is 2.45%. And then he's quick to say that it's really hard to get accurate numbers because everybody overestimates what they give. If you were just to like round up everything entrusted to them by God, all the perks, all the things that they got in their life, uh, when they sell things, there's all the stuff in their life, they give much less than that. They, they typically way overestimate how much they give. So one out of four self-identified Christians give nothing. The vast majority of Christians who are self-identified in that way give very little. And then here's another thing he found is that, you know, he's like, you would think that the more people earn, the more they would give. You know, it's like that classic moment of, if I won the lottery, I'd give this to that person and not give this. And he's like, probably not. Probably, probably not. They found that as a person's income went up, the percentage of giving went down. Uh, they, they even looked back and traced this over the course of about a decade and said that dollar for dollar, or not a decade, but a century, said dollar for dollar, the average American gave more during the Great Depression than they give today. Such an inter interesting commentary, right? That you would think that earning more would equate into giving more, but he's saying, no, it's not true. Earning more does not equate into giving more. And friends, if you have $100 today, you being generous with that $100 today is setting the tone for what you'll do in the future. And if you're not generous with that, you're not going to be generous with $1,000 tomorrow. That's just the way it works. You're developing the habit of generosity right now in your life that's going to show up or not in the future. So before we move on, let's just take a moment to stop here. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if you were to look at your generosity, what is it saying about your heart? What your heart is longing for, depending on what it loves? What is your generosity saying about those things? Christians give. Is that true of you? Have you stepped into that area of obedience with Jesus? First thing Paul wants us to see is Christians give. Here's the second thing he wants us to see is that Christians give first. Christians give first. Again, we pick it back up in verse two. He says, on the first day of every week, you might underline that little phrase in there. On the first day of every week, each of you put something aside. On the first day of every week. I love that phrase because that phrase is what Paul is using to set the priority or the place of generosity in our life. So let's just imagine a hypothetical guy. We'll call him Jim. If your name is Jim, I promise I'm not talking about you. It's just hypothetical guy, Jim, okay? And let's just think about the way Jim's generosity works. Uh, Jim, uh, he, uh, he's got a life that he's living, right? 
He's got things that he's paying for. He's got things that he likes to do. And so, so Jim's way that generosity kind of works out is he waits until the end of the month to see what's left. So he kind of does his life. He, he fits into things to his life that he wants to fit in there. And then at the end of the month, he thinks about what is left and what's left becomes the pool of things that he can think about generosity with. That, that's, that's Jim. Now, Jim's life and the way he works out generosity is very normative, right? I would say it's the way that most people work out their generosity. I'm going to do all the things I want to do first. Then with what's left, we can think about uh, this area of my life, g- generosity in my life. And, and Paul is saying, no, that's giving last, not first. And Paul's like, no, Christians give first, They give first and then they work out the rest of their life. They don't live the rest of their life doing what they want in the rest of their life and then give. No, they give first, then work the rest of their life around their giving. It's the principle of first fruits. And you see that throughout the Bible, right? The principle of first fruits. Jesus wants our first and best, not our last and worst. He wants our first and best, not our leftovers, Right? It's the principle of first fruits. So maybe you could picture your financial life as a car. So think, here's my financial thing going on in my life. It's a car. Think about that car. And every Christian, for every Christian, generosity should have a place in the car. The question is, where is it in the car? Right? Each of you set some aside. So it should have a place. Now, where is the place? Should it be in the trunk of the car? Right? Back there in the trunk where we open it a few times a year to see what's in there. Right? So it could be in the trunk. Uh, Paul's like, it could be in the back seat of the car, right? Where every now and then you turn around, you talk to the person in the back seat. It could be in the passenger seat. Or Paul is saying, here's where I want it. I want it in the driver's seat of your life. I want it behind the wheel of your financial life. Paul is saying here, what you want isn't to be at the wheel of your financial life. What you give is to be at the wheel, controlling, steering your financial life. Paul's saying what you want doesn't set the limit on what you give. What you give should set the limit on what you want. Saying that's, that's the way the Christian life should be ordered. Christians give first, Paul is saying, on the first day, not the last day. At the beginning, not at the end. Paul's saying th- this is what the rest of your financial life is to be ordered around. This is the organizing principle. Christians give first. So again, let's just take a moment to consider what is in the driver's seat of your financial life? Is what you want in the driver's seat or is what you give in the driver's seat? What happens first? What is everything else organized around in your life? And let me take just a moment to acknowledge that for some of us in the room, it's hard to even think about generosity because we are drowning financially. And if that's you, if you're just struggling to get to the surface of your financial life, the first step is you've got to bring some order to your financial world. So our next financial peace class starts in October, October the 17th. You can go to stonegate.church to sign up for that. And listen, if you are struggling in your financial world, you should be in that class. You should be raising your hand and getting help. Our people in there do such a good job. I heard some stories just this last week that were amazing of what happened just over the course of a few months of thinking about this with other people. So if that's you, If your financial world is in chaos, you're drowning, you just can't get to the surface, you need to make sure you prioritize going. And for the rest of our church, uh, we have a thing called Ramsey Plus. You can have a free subscription to it to get all of those sort of financial resources to just help you along, to bring some order to your uh, financial world. So what is in the driver's seat of your financial life? It's either what you want 
or it's your giving. And Paul is saying, I want you to give first. Christians give and Christians give first. Third thing Paul wants us to see is that Christians give sacrificially. Christians give sacrificially. So again, we're to verse two. Paul says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. And then he says this little phrase. You might underline or highlight this phrase. As he may prosper. Or this is the way the NIV puts it. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Okay, so let me take a step back and... Um, and come at it this way. If somebody were to come to you and ask this question, how would you respond? If they were to ask you, of the money that you have, so just think about all the money that you have, all of your assets, all the money that you have, what percent do you think God's interested in? How would you respond to that? What, what percent is God interested in? Most people in response to that question answer 10%. I think that's what God is interesting in. In other words, uh, most people think 10% is what God is concerned with. And then 90% is like, it's a free for all. I mean, whatever we want to do, it's, it's all good with the, the other 90%. But that is not true. Uh, according to the scriptures, God owns everything. Amen. We don't own anything. Everything is on loan to us. So, and, and we give um, sort of away a skewed version of what the Bible says just with our language that we own our home. We own the bank account. We own the investment. And the Bible is like, no, you don't. All of those things are on loan from God to you. God is the owner of everything, which means we as followers of Jesus are stewards of everything. Everything you have been given, God is looking at you and saying, you're sort of my money manager, right? That, that's what you are. You're the steward, right? And as a steward, we are responsible not for 10% of what he entrusts to us, but for all 100% of what has been entrusted to us. Now, most people think that 10% is all that God is worried about because of the tithe. And the tithe is a biblical thing. You find it all throughout the Old Testament. Let me just kind of do the work on what the Old Testament is doing with our generosity. In the Old Testament, there were three types of giving. Uh, the first is what you might think of as the tithe. It was 10% a year to support the priest and the, the church in the Old Testament, uh, the temple system in the Old Testament. 10% a year was doing that. There was a tithe that was required from the people. Secondly, there was 10% for the community. Right? This was to go to the feasts and festivals that made up life in the community. And then every three years, another 10% would be required from the people to help the poor. So on average, that was about 23% a year that was required in the Old Testament of the people of Israel. And then on top of that, you had various free will offerings. That's what the, the Old Testament called them. Where different projects were happening, where the temple would be expanded, whatever those things are, where the people of God would give a free will offering over the top of that 23%. That's the Old Testament. Now take what the Old Testament is talking about with the tithe, that 10% given to the Levites and the priests and the, the, the church in the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus commends the tithe in the New Testament in Matthew 23, but you'll never find the tithe commanded in the New Testament. You're never going to show or find that showing up. Instead of talking in terms of a percentage, the New Testament talks in terms of sacrifice. In the New Testament, this is the standard of giving, sacrifice. Old Testament, you could call it the tithe. 
New Testament, uh, Jesus elevates it to, here's the standard. It's, it's sacrifice, sacrificial generosity. So picture three levels of giving. This kind of helps you get a sense of how this would work. Uh, you could think of uh, one level of giving as less than your ability, right? This is where most people who self-identify as a Christian live, uh, less than your ability. You could think of the next one as according to your ability, right? This is where tithe might come in. Part of what G, uh, Paul is talking about in particular in this passage, set aside as in keeping with your income, right? A, a tithe, a percentage. Uh, and then you could think about it as above your ability or beyond your ability. And it's that beyond your ability place that is taking us into sacrificial generosity. And that is the uncharted water, sacrificial generosity that Paul is taking this church to. He starts in this passage, according with your income, kind of in, in keeping with your income, but then you get to 2 Corinthians 8, the next letter that Paul's writing to them, and you see the increase up to sacrificial generosity. That's where he wants to take their church, the Corinthian church, and this is where he wants to take our church. So you see this in 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 2, Paul is talking about the Macedonian churches. They are your inner city churches. First Corinthians, that's your suburban wealthy church, right? So, so he's using an image from the Macedonian church. And here's what he says about these impoverished Macedonian churches. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, inner city, impoverished Macedonian churches, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, that's that middle level of giving, as I can testify, and beyond their means, that, that top level of giving, sacrificial generosity of their own accord. And I love verse 4. Begging us earnestly. I mean, Paul wasn't having to beg them. They're begging Paul, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And Paul holds those Macedonians up to this wealthy, suburban, 1 Corinthian, or Corinthian church. He holds those Macedonians up as, as a model for them because they gave not according to their means, but beyond their means. They, they have walked into those uncharted waters of sacrificial generosity. Uh, to use a familiar image to maybe illustrate sacrificial generosity, uh, all of us have probably known people who have bought too much home, right? And anytime you overspend on a home and you buy too much home, uh, what happens? Well, when, when you do that, every other financial decision is then governed by that house decision, right? That's what happens when we buy too much house. Every other financial decision is governed by what we decided to do with the house. And, and Paul's saying, here's what sacrificial generosity looks like. It's not when a house is too big for your britches. It's when giving is too big for your britches. That's sacrificial generosity. It's when all of our other financial decisions are now governed by our giving decisions. That's sacrificial generosity. It's risky generosity, right? It's giving in a way that cuts into our daily life. It's giving in a way that makes us actually depend on Jesus in our life, that actually walks us into deeper faith in our life. That's sacrificial generosity. It's that little widow in Luke 21. She comes in and she gives those last two coins and Jesus says, everybody stop and I want you to see this lady and what she's doing. That woman right there is giving in a way that is beyond her means. She is giving sacrificially. She's giving in a way that requires faith. What are you going to eat tomorrow? I don't know. I'm going to trust Jesus tomorrow. That's what I'm going to do for my food tomorrow. 
It's that type of giving, and that's what Jesus commends, because it's sacrificial. So let's ask the question. If, if Christians give sacrificially, does that describe our giving? Is our giving setting the tone and governing all of our other financial decisions? Or are other things in our life governing the rest of our financial decisions? What is in the driver's seat? Paul is saying, this is where I want you to go. I want you to go to the waters, the deep waters, the deep waters of faith called sacrificial giving. Now, let me pause here and I want to talk about the journey of generosity in all of our lives. Nobody starts out super generous. You grow in your generosity one step at a time. So the, the, the thing for most of us in this room is not to go from, from one to 10, it's to go from one to two, to take the next step in the journey of generosity. Let me just describe that journey in five parts for you. It starts with what we might call an initial giver. That is the person who starts the generosity journey, right? They give for the first time to the agendas and causes of Jesus. They start, right? It's that initial moment of giving. And we should just take a moment to celebrate this. Over the last year, we have had over 300 people at Stonegate take that first step into giving. Could we just thank those people for that? Yeah, we should, we should celebrate that. If that's you in the room, thank you for taking that step in us. And maybe this is your next step. It's to take that first step into giving. That first sacrificial step. I'm, I'm going to start giving in my life. That's step one. Step two in the generosity journey is to becoming a consistent giver. It's when the person who started giving takes the next step and now they are consistently giving. And here's the great thing. Technology can be one of your best friends in this. You can automate your giving. You can go to the Church Center app right now. You can get that going there and you can automate your giving where it's going to show up every month. It's not left to your memory. You're not going to forget about it. It's scheduled in there. That's a great way to become a consistent giver. So maybe that's your next step is going from I started giving to know I am consistently giving. It's Paul saying, I, I've just set aside stuff at the first of the week. Every time I'm just, I'm being a consistent giver. I'm growing like that. That's the second step on the journey. Here's the third step is what we might call an intentional giver. So this person isn't just giving, they are giving first. Right? They're prioritizing giving in that type of way. Uh, this giver, an intentional giver, is typically reflected by those who are tithing. And for many, this is a great place for us to, to, to take a step toward uh, generosity and what the Lord would have for us. It can be a great place to start. Uh, we often use the image of, here's what God wants in your financial life, for you to be a sacrificial uh, giver, right? That's, that's where he's taking you. But what a tithe is, is like training wheels on the bike called sacrifice, and, and we all need training wheels when we start riding a bike. Typically, we don't just get on the bike and go. We have training wheels that kind of get us used to the bike, right? And, and that's what a tithe can be. And so for some of us, this would be a great place to start. It's just proportional giving. It's us uh, looking at our income and then saying, you know what? I'm going to take the next step and I'm going to start giving 10% of what the Lord has entrusted to me. So maybe that's the next step for you. So that's step three. Here's step four is a sacrificial giver. This is when the training wheels come off, we found our rhythm on the bike, and we are riding the bike called sacrifice, right? It's the person who Jesus is taking into these deep waters of faith. And they start to ask a different set of questions. Questions like, am I giving in a way that's changing me? Right? Am I giving in a way that uh, my giving, not what I give, not what I want in life, is the governor of my financial life? 
Uh, they're going into those places. Uh, they're asking that question is, is my generosity in the driver's seat? Am I giving not just my first, but am I giving my best to Jesus? Am I giving in a way that's actually requiring faith from me? See, when most of us say, I can't afford to give, what we really mean is, I can't give without it costing me something. Starbucks. I can't give without it costing me this thing, right? And ironically, that is exactly where Jesus is wanting to take us in our faith. It's where it actually hurts. Like we can actually feel it in our life. That is sacrificial generosity. And maybe that's your next step. God is, is walking you into that space, into that place of sacrificial generosity. And here's the last step. We might call this one a legacy giver. So for this person, they're no longer asking, uh, God, how much are you asking me to give? They're asking the opposite question. God, of what you've entrusted to me, how much are you asking me to keep of this? Because everything not in that little circle of what you're asking me to keep, I am ready to open up my hands and invest into your kingdom agendas and purposes right now. That, that's a legacy giver. And now think about a sacrificial giver. They're, they're asking the question in monthly and yearly terms. Uh, God, I want my commitment to give to govern all of my monthly and sort of my yearly decisions. A legacy giver is asking it over a much longer duration, their lifetime now. They're looking at the rest of their life and saying, God, I don't, I don't want my, my giving just to govern the next month or the next year. I want it to govern the rest of my time on earth. I want it to govern all of my long-term decisions. So my houses, my cars, my investments, I want it to be governed by by this principle, I want, I'm just going to keep this much and I'm going to give away everything else into your agendas and your purposes. During my junior year of college, I had the opportunity to live with a family and it was such a great experience uh, for me. They were in their early 70s and uh, the Lord had blessed them with a great job. They had plenty of money to retire at that point. Uh, they had done really well financially. And one night we were eating around the dinner table and I asked him, I'm like, so why haven't you retired? Like, like, you could, so why haven't you? And what he said always stuck uh, in me. He said, uh, I'm working really for one reason. I'm working so I can be a ridiculous giver. So I can invest everything the Lord's given me into his purposes and his agendas in this world. That's the reason that I'm working. And he worked for another six or seven years, just became a ridiculous giver. Like, he was giving in ways I'm like, you did what? Like, what, what, are you serious? Like, he became that sort of a person. And hear me, some of us need to develop that sort of vision in our life. There, there are some of you here today, and God is asking you to develop that sort of vision. Now, let me just throw this out to you. You're probably not going to get there on your own. So if that's you, uh, if you'll email me, here's what I would love to do for you. We've got a few of these people at Stonegate who, who think like that. And I would love to pair you up with some people who think like that so they could be an encouragement to you. Uh, they could be a good processor of that for you and just help you along with that. So if you'll email me, I'd love to connect you and love to be able to encourage you with some people around Stonegate who think in those types of terms, a legacy giver. Now, let's stop here and ask the question, where are you on that journey? It'd be a great conversation for you if you're married for your spouse to chat about. It'd be a great conversation in your home group this week. Where are you on that journey? And what is the next step in your generosity that Jesus is asking of you? What's the next step he's asking you to take? What's the next way, uh, next step you can take to be obedient to Jesus? Principle four, and we're done. Fourth thing Paul wants us to see is that Christians give in response. 
Christians give in response. Everything we do in the Christian life is in response to grace. Everything. There's nothing we do as a Christian that's not in response to what God has already done for us. This is, uh, this is John in 1 John uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 19, when he says, we love. Now, why do we love John? Here's why. Because he first loved us. Right? Everything we do in our life is in response to what God has already done for us. And that is true with our giving. We give because God has already given to us. We give because he's first given to us. He's given us his first and best. And by the way, this is what distinguishes our God, the God of the scriptures, from every other God out there that people worship. Every other God is a taker. Our God is a giver. And our God doesn't give leftovers. Amen? Our God gives his absolute best, his first and best. He gave his beloved son, Jesus. And it's because we have received from God his first and best that we can become a people who now give our first and best. We give in response. You see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's the, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is the longest teaching in the Bible on generosity. And, and Paul's talking to this church, the Corinthian church, and he grounds their giving. He's saying, yes, I want you to give sacrificial, but let me tell you the grounds of that sacrificial generosity. And here it is in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Here's the grounds for our generosity. We're giving in response to this. Church, for you know, for you know, this isn't left to doubt. You know this church, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by Jesus' poverty, might become rich. See, that's the ground of our generosity. That we have received from God everything we need in the person of Jesus, his beloved son. And because we have now received everything we need in Jesus, we can live with open hands. We can live ready to invest in the purposes and, and agendas of Jesus in this life. Christians give in response to that grace. Uh, Randy Alcorn, I'll finish with this. Randy Alcorn, I love how he says it. He says, where the lightning of grace strikes, where the lightning strikes, the, the lightning of grace strikes, the thunder of generosity is sure to follow. And friends, we have been struck by the grace of God. We have experienced the grace of God rescuing and redeeming us. So now we get to let the thunder of generosity loose in our life. Amen? Why don't you pray with me? Now I want to give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful today. And friend, if you have not received the grace of God, Jesus himself, his life, death, and resurrection... This is your day. He stands so ready to rescue and redeem you. So you can call out to God in the best way you know how, right there where you are, and he'll save you today. And for all of us who have been struck by the grace of God, God is moving you to let the thunder of generosity out in your life. So what is that next step that he would have for you? Can you ask that with an open heart to him? And friend, whatever that is, say yes today. Don't be enslaved to money and possession. Say yes to Jesus, your good master. So Father, would you help us in these things? Would you help us? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.